So as we do every year. So uh, we've, been, we've been going through this Christmas series. I reflect back on Christmas, uh, and uh, it's really funny to think back about some of your early childhood memories. Uh, I remember the year that Santa Claus fell off the roof of my grandparents' house. Uh, I don't want to spoil, spoil the Santa Claus thing for anybody, so I'm not going to tell you the story, uh, but uh, all's well that ends well. That was the year that I became a non-believer as it pertains to, uh, to Santa. Uh, it's funny, though, just to think back, you know, Christmas time is, in general, kind of a magical time, uh, you know, an exciting time. There are definitely difficulties. Uh, it's been probably 10 years ago or so that uh, our family uh, lost someone on Christmas, um, and so that's always there. But in general, it's, uh, it's a time of celebration, in general. And uh, so uh, I love to look back on it, and for me, it's mostly a mountaintop. But you know what's interesting? I've observed this in life. A lot of times, after we go through seasons of being on the mountaintop, we come to seasons of uh, what I'll call wilderness, where it's like, okay, we had this peak, pinnacle, mountaintop experience, but now, like, the reality sets in. Like, I remember when our first child came home from the hospital. You know, there's the euphoria and the newness of having a baby, and then there's the marathon of raising the baby. That sets in. Uh, and then there's the getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning to feed the baby. And then getting up again at 3.30 in the morning to feed the baby. I mean, not for me, but, you know, for, for you. <laughs> uh, you know, those, those kind of things happen. Or like you go, to, you go to school, you train, you get at the interview, and you finally get the job, and you're all excited, and then you got to do the job, right? And if it was all fun and games, they wouldn't have to pay you to do it. Uh, so a lot of times we have these mountaintop experiences, but then we go through prolonged periods of wilderness, a season in the wilderness. Uh, we live in a part of the world where there's distinct seasons. You start the year with winter. We have any winter lovers? Anybody love winter? Okay, we got a few takers. If you're into snow sports and that's your thing, that's awesome. Winter's great. Uh, what I look forward to is the end of winter because I'm a hot weather person. Uh, but no matter what the other seasons say about winter, winter's comeback is always, yeah, but I got Christmas, right? Winter, just barely, just by a few days, but winter always has Christmas. And then you come to the end of winter, and there's springtime. Everything's new. It's green. There's new life. Uh, it's not really that warm, but compared to winter, it feels pretty awesome. And then, of course, there's summer. I, I love everything about summer. I love the heat. I love the vacation. I love the ice cream. Everything's great at summer. And then you get to fall. And you know what fall has? Leaves. <laughs> That's it. Uh, to me, some, see, see, I don't understand fall people. Uh, some of you have had this conversation with because people all the time are like, oh, the fall's so beautiful. Fall means two things to me. Uh, everything's about to, you know, die. The leaves are all going to fall on the ground, and then winter's going to come. That's what it means for me. Call me a pessimist, but that's what I think of when it comes to fall. Nonetheless, whichever ones you like, we have distinct seasons. Uh, in this part of the world, they're very distinct. We don't, uh, other parts of the world, they're not all like that. Like, if you go to Phoenix in June and then you go again in November, it's a little cooler, but it's pretty much the same. Uh, it's really distinct here. Well, just like the calendar has seasons, doesn't life have really distinct seasons? Maybe you look back at, like, your elementary school years and then uh, your teenage years and then young adulthood. And if you have kids, the child-rearing years. And, uh, like, there's really distinct seasons that we go through in our life. And the Bible uses metaphors uh, all the time to describe the seasons of life. Last week, we talked about the valley. Uh, we contrast that to the mountaintop. This week, we'll talk about the wilderness and contrast that to the idea of being on the mountaintop. We're in this series called God With Us, talking about how do we experience and encounter God 
in the seasons of life, because we're all going to have them. We're all going to have various seasons. And there's one key verse that we've built it all around. It's one of the most critical, important verses in the entire New Testament, no matter what season you're in. It's Matthew 1, 23. He says, look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us, God with us. And he's actually quoting a verse from, said that was written 700 years earlier, before Jesus, by the prophet Isaiah. But he says his name, the important part, his name will be God with us. It's so important to understand that God is personal, that he's with you, that he's not just a force out there somewhere. Otherwise, if you don't understand that God's personal, then he just ends up being like this cosmic curmudgeon out there that's just watching to see if you're good enough. But God is personal in your joy, in your sorrow, in your loneliness, in your frustration, in whatever you're going through, God is personal. He's with you. And if we understand that God wants a relationship with us, that changes everything, especially in our time of need. Remember we said last week that if you don't have a relationship with God and you go through a valley and you get to the end of what you have, I can't give any more, you get to the end of what you have, then you're in trouble because what you have is all you have. But if you have a relationship with God, when you come to the end of what you have, that's not all you have. You still have something to grab a hold of. So it's so critical to understand that God is personal. He's with us. This week, like I said, I want to talk about the wilderness. And what do I mean by that? Now, the wilderness is different than the valley. The valley would describe the lowest points of life, uh, the times of heartache, the times of struggle. Valleys tend to be kind of shorter, more intense times of difficulty, of loss, of pain, whatever type of frustration. Wilderness, if you think about what an actual wilderness is, they tend to be really vast, open, empty, undeveloped, kind of lonely spaces. Uh, These are places that we all find ourselves. The Bible paints a really good picture when it describes the children of Israel, God's people, coming out of captivity in Egypt and then wandering in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of wandering. Think about their journey from Egypt to the promised land. Uh, Most scholars say they could have made it in about 11 days. And how long were they there? 40 years. Now, I think God took them the roundabout way, which it actually uses that phrase, to Sinai for the first year to detoxify and spend time with them. That first year, that was God's idea. But the other 39, that was all them, just just wandering around in the wilderness, uh, wondering if this is ever going to end. Am I ever going to move on to something new, something exciting. So you might find yourself in a place of wilderness, maybe today, uh, maybe tomorrow, but certainly at some point, and it might be in the wake of uh, something traumatic, like uh, a relationship gone bad. You thought that this was going to be long-term, and then it ends up it wasn't, or a financial wipeout that just takes years to dig out of, or a sense of loss, a sense of grief, uh, maybe a health issue or a mental health issue, or maybe you find yourself in a place of wilderness because you've just lost your enthusiasm for life. For whatever reason, I'm just not excited about anything anymore. Uh, This happens uh, all the time, more often than we would probably like to admit. You know, when people ask how we're doing, we generally say good. Uh, And sometimes that's a matter of, you know, putting on a front. And sometimes it's just a matter of like, social more like if you ask me how I'm doing I'm not going to lay down on the couch and spill for an hour about how terrible I'm you know my life is uh, but but sometimes we just find ourselves in this spot where it's like what's the point 
what am I doing here? Like, I'm just on the hamster wheel. Uh, hopefully, I'm not the only person who's ever been bored. Uh, I think probably a lot of you can understand that. Now, for whatever reason, whatever the reason of being in the wilderness, whatever your reason for maybe spir- being spiritually dry or lonely or anxious, know this. If you allow your wilderness to make you dependent on God, it will become a blessing. If the wilderness makes you dependent on God, it will become a blessing. If you don't allow it to show you your dependence on God, then it will just be a weight around your neck, and you'll just carry it around forever. Uh, Allow the wilderness to make you dependent on God. There's a really good example of this in 1 Kings 19. Uh, This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time here. In 1 Kings 19, there's a guy named Elijah, uh, one of the most incredible prophets in the Old Testament, and he has a literal mountaintop experience followed by a literal wilderness experience experience. So in 1 Kings 19, uh, we find him, just for context, coming off a pretty incredible mountaintop experience. Right before we find him in chapter 19, uh, he just got done having the showdown on Mount Carmel. Yep, it's called Carmel. I don't know. Uh, He's he's on Mount Carmel, and the showdown, uh, the short version of it is, he's there with these these 850 false prophets. Now, uh, you could think of them like uh, they were basically the king, King Ahab. They were like his minion. Uh, he sort of had, he was into all this weird idolatry stuff, and Ahab was just a wicked, evil, horrible king. And, uh, and he hated Elijah. He just couldn't do anything about him because Elijah was like God's guy, right? And uh, so he has this showdown with him, and here's what happens. Let's pretend like all of you, you're King Ahab's minion. I'll be Elijah, of course. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so Elijah's over here, and they're going to have a showdown, and you guys are going to try and call on your God, your imaginary God, to show a sign that your imaginary God is, is really the real thing. So go ahead. No, okay, nothing. Uh, great. Well, uh, what they did was they started doing just all kinds of outlandish things, you know, shouting, chanting, cutting themselves, trying to get their imaginary God to show a sign. And Elijah is over here. Now, remember, there's 850 of you, and you all hate me, and I'm crazy. Um, so I think, you know, probably all those things are... No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and Elijah's over here, and he's literally, like, talking trash to this group of 850 crazy men right here who all hate him. Uh, he's saying things like, hey, uh, I know, maybe you should yell louder. Maybe he's just sleeping. Yell louder. Yell louder. You'll wake him up for sure. Maybe he's just like on the can or something. You go ahead. Just, just call it down. He's coming any second now. I just know it. Right? He's like egging them on, uh, which is like kind of like you have to be pretty bold to do that in that situation. So finally, he has enough, and Elijah just calls on God, and God sits down, literal fire, burns up all the altars, destroys all the prophets. Sorry about that. That's why I made you the 850, not me. Uh, but, but the point is, like, he's confronting all of these people, and he's not afraid, right? He's, he's having this incredible mountaintop experience where he basically just dominates all of his opponents. And so the word gets back to King Ahab, this horrible, wicked king, uh, who is like, that's basically all we know about Ahab, is that he was wicked, he was evil in God's eyes, he was an opponent of God's. Well, the only person in the kingdom more terrifying than King Ahab was his wife, Jezebel. If you wondered, why doesn't anybody name their daughter Jezebel anymore? It's because of this lady. That's why you don't hear this particular name. Uh, maybe someone knows someone named Jezebel. Uh, sorry about that. Well, she hates, she hates Elijah. She hates him, so she sends a message. She says, tell Elijah that by this time tomorrow, he will be 
dead. Uh, we were at my in-law's house for Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago, and uh, you know how it is, uh, especially if you're like a, the, the matriarch or the mom of a, like a big family, like an extended family, like you spend all the money, you buy all the food, you do all the work, you clean the house, you make the meal, you're the last person to sit down right as the first wave of people are getting up and leaving all their dirty dishes behind. Uh, and you're thinking to yourself, by this time tomorrow, all of you will be dead. Now, uh, uh, this is how Jezebel is. Like, she's just, she's just mean. She's just a horrible, horrible person. And so she, uh, she sends word, by this time tomorrow, you will be dead. Now, Elijah just, just stood down this 850 false prophets. He's stood in the face, literally, of King Ahab before. Like, he's not afraid. He's a bold guy. But as soon as this one woman makes her threat, Elijah just starts booking it, right? He starts to run. This is what it says, 1 Kings 19.3. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Okay, pause just for a second for reference. Beersheba is roughly 100 miles from where he started. Just for clarification, he's on foot. That's how afraid he is of Jezebel. So he goes 100 miles. She makes her threat. He just starts forest gumping it to Moses Lake. He gets there, and uh, he wasn't afraid of the 850 that he left behind, but he's afraid of Jezebel. And all I can really say to that is King Ahab is one lucky man, is he not? So he gets there, and he leaves the servant behind. The servant is actually the person I feel sorry for, right, because he's not under threat. He's just, like, following along 100 miles. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He's in the wilderness now, and he's alone. He's actually at the end of his rope in the wilderness, and he's alone. He's filled with despair. He's loathing his own life. In the wilderness, he's just, he's just done. You ever spent a day at work and, you know, you get that call and you hang up the phone and you're just done? You just, I don't, want, I don't want this job anymore. There's a famous old song that said, take this job. And I don't remember what came after that. <laughs> he's just done. He doesn't, he's done with his career as a prophet. I'm not going back. He's, he's literally praying, God, I've had enough. I'm at the end. Have you ever been there? Me too. I've been there. I've had days just like that one. Uh, the former president, Teddy Roosevelt, the first one, uh, as many of you know, his mother and his wife uh, both passed away on the same day in the same house. And he wrote a famous journal entry, a famously short journal entry that day. He said, the light has gone out of my life. You ever have moments like that where you're just filled with despair? That's where Elijah's at. He's, he's done. I can't take anymore. I don't want to go on. I'm done with this. I just... I just want out. Now, I'm positive that in a group of people this size, uh, there are many, probably most, who have been in this spot, and we've said those three little words, either in our head or out loud, I've had enough. I've had enough of this. I'm done. I'm spent. Uh, I remember when our kids were little, coming home at the end of the day, and Brandy feeling like, I'm done. I'm emotionally exhausted. Uh, I'm positive that there are moms of young children who are hearing my voice right now and thinking, yeah, I've been there. Uh, anybody ever had a job that was just life-sucking? 
and literally the only reason you did it was because you have to eat food and live indoors. But if it wasn't for that, you'd be gone in a heartbeat. Yeah, probably, probably a lot of us. Have uh, you ever been stuck in this cycle of discouragement? Maybe even to a point where you get to the stage where you don't even remember like, how it started and how you got discouraged, but you just get to this point where it's like, I just can't even care about this anymore. I'm done. Uh, that client calls and makes another ridiculous ma- demand. I'm done. I just I can't do it anymore. That's, that's where Elijah is at. He doesn't, he doesn't want to go on. Now, this is what you've got to understand about Elijah. He's not a weak, frail, helpless person. Remember what just happened with the 850? He's, he's not the guy who's griping and complaining and whining because he just loves to play the victim. That's, that's not who he is. Uh, he has experienced the power of God like no one else. In fact, one time he even got in the king's face and he said to him, because you are so wicked, God is going to send down a drought on the land. He called down a drought from heaven that lasted three years. And then after three years, he saw one little cloud. The Bible says that it was the size of a man's hand. And he had strong enough faith to say, the drought is over. And he called on God to end the drought after three years, and God sent the rain. Okay, this is Elijah. He's not a frail person. My point is that even the strongest among us, the most self-assured among us, are going to go through wilderness phases. We're going to go through times when we feel dry, when we feel lonely, even just bored. Like, what's the point of this? All of us are going to come to the point where we've had enough. So let me just be, I'll just be really like transparent with you uh, about this. Uh, There was a study done by a guy named Peter Drucker some years ago. He's passed away now, but he, uh, Peter Drucker, if you don't know who he is, I've I've referred to him before. He's known as the father of the the modern corporate structure in America. He he was an author, an entrepreneurial and business leadership guru, and uh, also a professor. And he did a study with his research group, and they wanted to try and quantify a list of the most difficult jobs in America. Uh, Now, some of you have very difficult jobs. Uh, There probably are tons of them that could have made the list that didn't necessarily. Uh, But I bet bet everybody in here could guess within 60 seconds what the first one was. I'm not going to wait silently. I'll just tell you. POTUS, President of the United States. That was was the one, which makes sense because your job never stops, and on day one, half the people hate you. Like, that's just tough foot to, like, get, you know, how you get that off the ground. Uh, two and three, not, maybe not surprisingly, were president of a major university and CEO of a hospital. Also very stressful, uh, very demanding jobs. Number four might surprise you. They quantified the fourth most difficult job in America as being pastor of a local church. Um, so, I tell you that for context, not for pity, but I'll take your pity. No. Uh, <laughs> To tell you this, if you were to go around and ask pastors how they're doing, and uh, if somehow magically like you had enough relationship to get past like, you know, the surface and ask them how they're doing, one thing you would hear a lot is, I'm tired. I'm just, I'm tired. Uh, and now that makes sense. Now you know why. Uh, and I would say 15 years in, yeah, I get that. Uh, I, I totally understand that. Uh, but I bet there's a lot of other people here who are also tired. You ever been tired? I mean, pastors aren't the only ones that, like, uh, are busy or stressed out. Um, I bet that description fits probably a pretty strong majority in this room. Probably everybody here can relate to that. Uh, Sometimes we're just tired. Well, Dr. Henry Cloud, who is just a world-renowned psychologist, he's 
famous for being an author. He's written some bestsellers. He also happens to be a Christian. Uh, when he was speaking to a group of leaders one time, he was talking about this, this very issue of just being tired. Okay? You all have a lot of things going on. You have people uh, who are needing things from you, especially just depending what stage of life you're in. That might be more or less. A lot of you are tired. You would say that fits. What he says is that most of us are actually misdiagnosing our problem. Because if you were tired, you could take a nap. Or you could take a day off, and your problem would be solved. He says that for most of us, our problem is that we're spiritually depleted. We're running on empty on an ongoing basis, internally, not necessarily physically. I saw a perfect example of this uh, mishandled one time. Uh, when I was a pastor over in the Seattle area, I ran into a guy at a coffee shop uh, who had been part of our church, but I hadn't seen him for a long time, for several months. He hadn't been around, and, uh, which is always super weird if you're wondering, because like, you run into somebody, and like, I don't know, like, if I see you at a coffee shop, do you assume that I'm going to ask you why you weren't there last week? Because I'm not even thinking that, to be honest. Uh, but he's like immediately like, oh, yeah, man, we've just been super busy. I was like, whoa, how you doing? <laughs> uh, and uh, one of the things he told me was, you know, we've just been so busy, just so tired, just so exhausted that we just decided to take the summer off of church. And I was thinking to myself, like, you needed margin in your life and that was the thing you decided you were going to give up? Like, I can think of other things that might have been more beneficial to give up uh, than, like, spending time with other believers, other people who want to encourage you and hearing from God's word and worshiping God. Like, I can think of things that would have been much more beneficial for you to give up. Like, hey, how about you don't go to the monster truck rally on Friday night? It'll come again next year. Uh, I can think of other things that would have been a lot better. Well, here's the thing. Just like your car can only burn so much fuel before it eventually runs out. It's had enough. It, it can't go any farther. And just like your body can only burn so much fuel before it's spent. It can't go any farther. Your spirit, your internal you, what makes you who you are, can only burn so much fuel before it can't go on. Think about Elijah and all that he's experienced. Uh, he knows that God is real and God is with him. Uh, he knows that God is for him, but he's burned enough fuel now that he just can't go on. The same is true for you and I. Your spirit can only take so much and for so long before you've had enough and you lay down and you wither. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have had enough. You just want it to be over. You just want to move on. Uh, what you don't need is a nap or a day off. Although those are awesome, I'm totally recommending them. What you need is to have your spirit revived, to have your spirit re replenished. Uh, have you noticed that when your spirit is good, when you feel good inside, life is good no matter how your body feels. But when your spirit is down, life is down, no matter what's happening on the outside. What you need is an encounter with the spirit of God a new revelation of the fact that he's with you, he's for you, that he's got a future for you, he's got plans for you, and when it's all over, you're going to his house. That's really, really good news. I just want to read for you one of the most well-known, well, uh, most often quoted chapters in the Bible, Psalm 23. Just think about the implications of what it says in here. David is writing, he says, "'The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want.'" He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
Your rod and your staff, your strength, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. You, you mark me. You, uh, you call me yours so that my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God provides what you need. He wants to provide for you physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way. Uh, rest is good, but spiritual rest is better. And this is what we see Elijah do. He seeks spiritual refuge in God. So I just want to read uh, just a few paragraphs of his story and just make one critical observation that I think will actually change somebody's life, somebody's existence today. Uh, just picking it up where we left off, 1 Kings 19.4, it says, When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up, eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, and there he went into a cave and spent the night. Now, that's just, that part's just for context for what happens next. When he gets to the cave, he starts to complain and lament uh, to God. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put pro the prophets to death with the sword. And I sort of imagine him using like his whiny voice, you know, like, <laughs> I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me too. I don't know if he used his whiny voice or not, but that's just what I envision. He starts to complain. We do that when we get in, in the wilderness, when we just get uncomfortable or bored. I don't know if he used his whiny voice or not, but it appears for the moment that he's forgotten who he is. He's forgotten some things that God says about his children, which is you, just like it is him. He's forgotten that God said, Elijah, you're the head, not the tail. Elijah, you're the first, not the last. Elijah, you're called by my name. You're a member of my household. Surely my goodness and mercy and love are going to follow you all the days of your life. And guess what? When this life's over, you're going to dwell in my house forever. Elijah's forgotten all about that. I say we take a page out of this book and not forget ourselves, that that's what God says about you, that you're a member of his household. Elijah has forgotten all about that. This is what happens next. Elijah goes to the mouth of the cave. It says, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire came a gentle whisper. The earth shook and it wasn't God. The wind blew, and it wasn't God. The fire raged, and that wasn't God either. Earth, wind, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> if you don't know why other people are giggling right now, it's okay. Just enjoy being young. The rest of us will all be gone soon, and you'll understand more jokes as you go. 
All of these great powerful signs happened, but God wasn't in them. God's presence was not in the remarkable or the powerful or the loud. His presence was in the simple, in the ordinary whisper. That's where God could be found. We're going to tie this all together. I, want, I just want to make sure we get our heads around something really important, but I'm going to ask Jess and the band to come because we're going to, we're going to sing uh, one last song of worship before we go. Uh, have you ever wondered when you're wandering in the wilderness, when you're going through the mundane, have you ever wondered where God is? Do you ever watch the news or look out at the world around you and say, God, why don't you do something? I know you do that. I do too. Everyone does that. You ever wonder why God doesn't do something incredible? I mean, if he's all-powerful, if he's really there, why doesn't he do something miraculous to change the situation? If, if God, why doesn't God just speak loudly so that everyone will know he's there? Why doesn't God ever do, why don't we just see him do something powerful to demonstrate his presence? If God wants me to hear him, why does he whisper? Ask questions like that. If God wants me to know him, why is he quiet? Why doesn't God shout out loud so that everyone can hear and just settle the matter? Why doesn't he speak in loud, spectacular ways? Why does God whisper? There's one reason why God whispers, and that's because he's close. You don't don't shout at someone who's far away. God whispers because he's close. Think how close you have to be You have to be really close. God whispers because he's close. Can you imagine how close you have to be for someone to hear your whisper? God whispers because he's right here. When our spirit is depleted, Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Ephesians 2 says, though we were once far away from God, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on the cross and settled the only problem, the only thing standing between you and God. Why does God whisper when life is coming apart? Why is he quiet when we're going through heartbreak? Why don't, why don't we hear God speaking when we're sort of aimlessly going through the motions and just working and wondering when something interesting is gonna happen in life again? He whispers because he's close. I don't know about you, part of the reason that I don't hear him is because I don't stand still long enough to hear the whisper. I read God's word, but then I close it up and I'm gone. I don't allow God to whisper to my spirit. I don't spend time uh, just being in his presence so that he can whisper to me. God whispers because he's close. There's no other reason that you would whisper to someone that I can possibly think of other than being in close proximity. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10, it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Wherever you are, even there, God is close enough to hold your hand and guide you. If you can believe that, then what you have is not all that you have. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me. Uh, some of you have had enough. Uh, and some of us just, just don't want to go on as things currently are. Uh, right now, we're going to pray just a really simple prayer. 
And I believe that God is going to give some of you the strength to fight on right now, right here today. Uh, And then you're going to have the ability to look ahead and press on and trust in him. And at some point, he's going to lead you through the wilderness, and you're going to be able to look back and realize he was with me the whole time. And then's your opportunity to find someone else who's struggling and tell them what you know. Tell them God is close. So right now, I'm going to ask everyone in the room to just pray this simple prayer with me. Lord, I've had enough. You take over. Lord, I've had enough you take over. If you're doing great right now, I'm going to ask everybody to just pray that out loud with me. Help somebody else get there uh, just by praying with me. Lord, I've had enough. You take over. Once again, Lord, I've had enough. You take over. Can you see yourself giving the burden over to him? He can handle it. Lord, I've had enough. I'm tired. Would you take over? Allow yourself to hand over your burden to him. He can handle that. Lord, I've had enough. Would you take over? In Jesus' name.